our sermon text in Exodus 28. Exodus chapter 28, the whole chapter. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with a spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, And so it shall be joined together, and the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and six names on the other stone, in order of their birth, with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet. You shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold. And you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. Artistically woven, according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. They shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes." You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings, which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner sides of the ephod. And two other rings of gold you shall make, and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, 
right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so that the breastplate does, breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen's red. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and for beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness, They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur the the iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his ascendants after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if ever we needed to receive the power of the Spirit-given illumination, surely it is for these elements of the ceremonial law. We see vaguely that they have great importance, things that touch upon Christ and upon ourselves, things having to do with the gospel, but, Lord, precisely how they all work and how they fit together, Lord, it is hard for us to put together, whether in our, our mind in, in physical terms of what this all looked like, or, but more importantly, theologically, how these things point us to Christ and to the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you do a great work among us and make these things to be known and proclaimed joyfully and to be received joyfully. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the last uh, few sermons we've been in the Exodus series, we've been focusing on the tabernacle And it's very clear that God gave very careful attention. Um, I was going to say much thought. I actually shrunk back from that in my introduction, but then I saw it um, very much in Psalm 
Psalm 8, so I guess it's, it's right in, in a sense to say that, but we always understand, of course, that, that known to God from all of eternity are all of his, his works. And as I mentioned in my, my prayer, we don't imagine a God who has to spend time to give consideration to something. But rather, I guess what we're thinking about is the number of his decrees that touch upon that subject. He, he thinks of all things that have ever been or shall ever be, but uh, to what extent are those things his focus? Well, of course, he gives a great deal of focus to, to ourselves as his people, and in this he gives a surprising amount of focus and many other things that are related to the tabernacle. So we know that. Um, and he, he demands that Moses make this place precisely according to his own perfect design. But, of course, the tabernacle just is a place, and it's a place for activity. And we said it's a place where people could meet with God. But that meeting was never to be alone. The meeting was always to be mediated through a priest, of course, and, in fact, that the people themselves only had access to a certain amount of that tabernacle, and the priest alone could go into another part, and certainly the high priest then into the Holy of Holies. So we come to this question, what is the priesthood and why did God establish it? I think I was reminded of that a little bit. I was in the airport in Crete and in front of me was a Greek Orthodox priest. And I was very aware that although, well, on, on the one hand, on our government paperwork, we would be under the same general category as a religion, a minister of religion. Yet, in reality, our function and everything else were very different because this man really considered himself to be a priest. And his job was to perform ceremonies by which people, they were led to believe, are made right with God. And so it's essential that he wears these special garments as a priest. And he was wearing them at the time, and I was not. Now, we don't have real priests anymore, despite the pretensions, whether of the Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholic or even of some Church of England people, there are no real priests left. But again, that only reminds us of why it was that we had them in the first place. How is it, if we now we can get by without priests, how is it that we ever had to have them in the first place? Well, let me just say that we don't feel that need because we are in Christ, and it's hard for us to understand. Again, it is like those who've just had some wonderful feast. And at Open House, we had a wonderful feast. And immediately thereafter, it's very, very hard to imagine what it's like to be starving. Right? It takes a great deal of imagination. And so we look at someone starving, and we maybe feel some sympathy, but it's hard to really imp- enter into that situation. Well, that's us in Christ we receive of the perfect high priesthood of Christ, and it's kind of hard to imagine what it's like to be without that and and what it is indeed that one could gain from a priest. But let me say it wasn't always so for God's people. Consider that strange story of the Levite in Judges 17. You remember this, this priest, this Levite. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place, This is after he stole money from his his mother. He came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. That's that's a plan. He said, uh, Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, 
And I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. That was the mentality of, of people, and even of the covenant people of God, the desperate need of there being a priest, and hopefully a legitimate priest. Now, by the way, what's the next thing that happened? The Danites come and steal him. Uh, when these, this tribe of Dan go into Micah's house, they took the carvage, the ephod, the household of idols, the molded image. The priest said to him, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family of Israel? And so that's the way it was. And even when the priest is quite obviously a sinner like this man, they desperately needed that. They wanted that. Why? Because they wanted to be blessed of the Lord. And the only way to do that is to have someone to mediate on their behalf, however unworthy that that man might have been. This man that we knew to be, we know to be a thief. Well, friends, we are scratching around at the edges of understanding an aspect of Christ. We know good and well, as Calvin has taught us, that uh, one way to consider the enormous and infinite work of Christ is to think about him as prophet, priest, and king. And what do we know about his work as a priest? Well, we know a lot about it from what we have in the Old Testament priesthood, which he replaced. Right? How do we understand? Uh, just to give another illustration... As I'm struggling to, to convey um, this, this material to you, just uh, how interesting it is to, to look into this old building at All Saints and to see how the systems were originally designed. It's actually impossible to figure out, the, to appreciate what we are planning to do, hopefully, in, in, in making a new heating system unless we first understood why the heating system that was there was in the first place and in what ways it might have been inadequate. Or particularly the audio system that we're, Lord willing, going to try out uh, this next week. How inadequate the original system, as it were, was. And why it is that something better is required. That's what we get from the priesthood. On the one hand, the real and powerful um, purpose and functionality of the priesthood, but also of their inadequacy, because that points us to Christ. Well, without further ado, the priesthood instituted. That's our title tonight, priesthood instituted. So children, if your parents ask you what the title is, you won't have to wonder. It's the priesthood instituted. And there are these three points. Set apart men, clothed in holiness, carrying the nation before God. Set apart men, clothed in holiness, carrying the nation before God. That's, of course, what we find that Christ does ultimately for us, and let's not forget as we go. And first, these are set-apart men. We read in verse 1, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Now the term priest is not given really any explanation here, but it wouldn't be unknown to them, unless we imagine, because you, you know good and well that that kind of secular academics would say <clears throat> that somehow we just borrowed the idea of priesthood from the pagans. Uh, that's not the, the case. Uh, the first mention is in Genesis 14. 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and on earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he that is Abraham gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tithe of all. All right, so the paradigm, the original one, as the, the apostle in Hebrews points out to us, is Melchizedek rather than Aaron, and certainly rather than any pagan priesthood. And we'll speak a little bit more about this priesthood later. But then we know thereafter that Joseph married the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of, of On, an Egyptian pagan priest. And in Moses' own life in Exodus 2, uh, when he goes to dwell in the land of Midian, who does he encounter but the daughters of the priest of Midian? And he marries one of them. So he was married, in fact, to the daughter of a priest. So there's a sense in which the nature of the office is already known, all right, and in which the world, even though in pagan antiquity had already departed far from biblical truth, they knew enough of the basic concept that they should have a priest, a mediator between God and man in some way. Now, I might just mention that it's, oh, sorry, it's what's specified in the text, mainly take Aaron, your brother, and his sons from among the children of Israel. So if we think about the nature of the priesthood, fundamentally it is one who is taken from the generality of mankind and put into that particular office, right? So that consecration and uh, ordination become crucially important um, for anyone who would hold to a modern-day uh, priesthood. Now, we really uh, think that ordination is extremely important because it's a recognition of the church setting aside a man for an office. But for these people, say for that, that Eastern Orthodox priest, it was crucially important that he had a valid uh, consecration ceremony involving all sorts of of water and oil and incantations and all the rest of these things by some proper bishop tracing his lineage back uh, all the way so-called to the apostles because that's the only way that his magic works. He has to have this power uh, as a priest to do stuff and it doesn't work unless he has that kind of consecration. Well, that's a perversion of it. The, the truth of the matter before us is that you have someone who is taken from the generality and made to sort of like what we take uh, in the Lord's Supper. We take ordinary bread. There's nothing special about the bread, but we set it apart from that use to be used for a holy purpose in the Lord's Supper. And so it is with these men who are taken to be made to be priests. They are set apart men. And that's a very important concept. That they are set apart. And that points us, of course, to Christ who is set apart in so many ways, holy and set apart um, from sin. And they are there to minister to me. Notice that their service is primarily towards God. Although we, as we interact with this, might think that they are there to serve the people, fundamentally and primarily they are there actually to serve God. Now they serve the people in so doing. But they are to give continual sacrifices before God, whether there's anyone there particularly besides them or not. They're there continually ministering before the living God. Now, these, as I say, these set-apart men um, that God gave. And they are, secondly, clothed in holiness. And this is the bulk of the chapter. They're clothed in holiness. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. 
And it speaks, by the way, I want to make mention of these gifted artisans. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And here, actually, my reference has little to do with the sermon tonight and more to do with the sermon this morning, which I was pointing out that even those who are practically minded, those who are in the diaconate and those who assist the diaconate, and those who would give their hands to all the practical concerns of the church and its meeting place, uh, a reminder that even here it is critically important to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of wisdom. And if we are ever to do anything of enduring use and, uh, and, and bringing glory to God, then surely it is because the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do so. Well, anyways, they have these gifted artisans to make them. And these are the garments they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So shall they make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his son, that, they, that he may minister me as priest. Holy garments. They're holy. And, and how, what can we think again of holiness? It is set apart from ordinary use. And yes, as a byproduct of that, and as an emphasis of it, they're more beautiful than ordinary things. In fact, he says that you may have both for glory and for beauty, that, that holy things are supremely beautiful. beautiful. The, the Lord himself is supremely and perfectly and infinitely beautiful. We want to know what the standard of beauty is. The, the standard of beauty, just like the standard of all truth and goodness, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we will see him. And that will be the great and supreme privilege of our eternal lives, to behold the Lord in all of his glorious beauty and his holiness. But even then, something that vaguely looks like that is if we have a priest that in any way ministers sort of like Christ was going to minister, he needs to be clothed in a way that is like that. And so there are set-aside garments, holy garments, that aren't going to be used for anything else. And that's both by prescription and both by design. These garments wouldn't be good for any other use, right? If you imagine the greatest ceremonial uniform, uh, let's, let's take, I, I have a ceremonial uniform. Um, it would not be, do any good to go to, to All Saints and, and to be lifting those, those, uh, those pews out of the pit that's been there for 36 years and all the dust and all the rest of it that, that would be no good at all. It would soon be destroyed. Well, so it is with these priests who have these holy garments. It's only useful for the holy set-aside work of which they're called to do. Now, let me say that they are clothed in holiness, and this points us both to Christ and to ourselves, because a priest had a little element of both of these things in his being clothed in holiness. Because on the one hand, on wearing external garments in which, you know, that was the whole point. He isn't inherently so wonderful. He's not inherently so holy. And so before he can go minister, they have to put on these wonderful holy garments so that he can play the part more accurately. Well, in that sense of the externality or at least that imputation of holiness, the priest is like us. Because that's what the Lord says in Revelation 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments. Buy these white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And what he's saying is that you inherently, you church, inherently are sinners. 
And you need to come buy some garments from me that you can clothe yourself so that you can appear in my house and not be ashamed. You can come into my house and be welcomed as you're clothed in these garments of holiness. It's not you intrinsically. It's something that you've got you received from me. And in that sense, the priest was very much like each and every one of us. That our, our holiness is not something we have, but something we've purchased from Christ at a very low and reasonable price of faith alone. And one of the elders, by the way, I'll say, um, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And he said to him, sir, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's the other perspective of it. Buying on the one hand or washing in the shed blood of the Lamb is the other perspective. But the result is the same, that they are wearing robes not of their making, that are perfectly white in the presence of God. So that's pointing to us. But on the other hand, it's pointing, of course, to Christ, the one to whom he is ministering and the one that he is a type of, because Christ himself wears such robes. In Revelation 19, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one could know except himself, and reminded that this priest was to wear a crown on his turban, And there was something written, actually, on that, the name, holiness to the Lord. Well, in this case, there is some name written, which no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And his armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So that Christ himself is also clothed in holiness. The the difference being that, that this holiness was of his making, um, that they were dipped in blood, and, and yes, uh, that these things are inherently of his doing rather than received from another. So what do we know about these, these priests? Well, they're set apart men, fundamentally, and they're clothed in holiness. And let me just say that more could be said on this topic, but let's now move on to that third point. They're carrying the nation before God. They're carrying the nation, as it were, on their shoulders into the presence of the living God. Now, that helps us to understand what's being made here. All right, let's take the example of the shoulder stones. In verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave them on, on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone, in order of their birth, With the work of an engraver in stone like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. And so Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. And we'll see that the same is the case with the breastplate. Let's just observe generally the beauty and the perfection of God's plan for them. Because the thing about the priesthood is how do you know his service is for you? It's a big thing. You know, again, for Roman Catholics, in their idolatry, it is a big thing. If you're a rich person, you really want to buy the services of a priest. In fact, some will establish private mass chapels and they will employ a priest to do nothing but to say masses all the days of his life for either their departed uh, relative or for they themselves, their whole family perhaps. 
And, and they know good and well that this chapel and that priest is for them because the chapel bears their name. And the priest is employed by them. And, and all he does and goes into the, in the so-called into the presence of God in order to intercede on behalf of that one family and with that one name. Well, beloved, that's wrong in its application, but right in the principle. Because whatever priest you have, he's better, you better have his name, your name, on his lips. You better be carrying you in some way or another before the presence of God because you can't do it yourself. You're not allowed into that Holy of Holies. You're not even allowed into the holy place. And, and you're fundamentally disqualified from coming on your own merits before God. You need someone to intercede for you. You need someone to do the work of bringing you into the presence of God. Someone who is holier than you are. Yes, that's the whole point of a priest. They are holier than thou. And that's the purpose of them. And they're carrying then some person or some people before God. And so God in his infinite wisdom made these shoulder straps with these onyx stones, these large onyx stones with all the names of the children of Israel written so that they might know that, yes, this priesthood was for them. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders. And as I say, likewise in the breastplate. You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. And it goes on to explain all these things. And you shall put in verse 17 settings of stones on it, in it, four rows of stones. The first shall be a sardius, a topaz, an emerald. The second, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings, and the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes. Now, I don't at all suggest that we should do such things, and I only say it in jest, but I wonder if it would help anyone if, in fact, I wore something with everyone, the names of every one of the members of, of this church. I wonder, and, and I guess symbolically, we certainly do that. I do that, and you do that. As we have a prayer list with everyone's name, all the members' name, and many of the regular attenders as well, that we would remember one another in prayer. And I certainly do that, at least uh, symbolically. But the point is that they don't have to wonder what this service is for because their names are written there, the names of all their tribes. And the summary of that in verse 29, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart, When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And beloved, what did the Lord Jesus do for us? Did he know our names? Yes, he did. Gospel of John, which I I love to consider all the times that are mentioned in the way in which he speaks of the sheep. Particularly in the great high priestly prayer, but in other places as well. That the Lord Jesus Christ had sheep that were given to him by the Father. He knew all their names, right? He knows them by name. And he calls them forth by name, one by one. And he bore their sins. I know that Arminians have this pretense of somehow making an improvement on biblical doctrine that somehow Christ bore the sins of every person that ever, ever lived, even those who were already in hell. It's nonsense. It's destructive. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ bore the sins of his people just as he had their names on his heart. 
And there, as he was bleeding and dying, there was a joy set before him. Who? Random people that he couldn't quite remember their names or couldn't quite place their faces? Or even worse, some random humanity that may or may not be there, that he had some vague idea that of all the billions of people that have ever been, I hope that some of them will be there. Some faces flashing before him? No, 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 no. No, he and his, 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 his divine nature and his perfect mind knew all of our names and all of our faces. And the joy set before him was precisely the fulfillment of that which was on Aaron's breastplate. There, it wasn't cheap things, baubles like this that he had on the breastplate, the precious stones, because these people were precious to the Lord Jesus, precious enough to die for. And they all had their name attached to them, and so it is, friends, with you and I. We have it much better than the people of Old Testament Israel, when only it was their tribe's name, and one little stone. The Lord Jesus Christ far more so bore for each and every one a precious gem, as it were, having our particular name on it. And therefore we have the greatest certainty and the greatest joy of such a perfect priest set apart from all sin and from all sinners, perfect in his holiness, clothed in his own holiness, not of someone else's holiness imputed to him, but he, the perfect priest, had that holiness in himself and had all perfect entrance into the Holy of Holies. And there he bore us on his shoulders, on his chest, before his heart, at great cost, not through the blood of lambs or of goats, but of his own precious blood into the presence of God. And he succeeded where all those priests could only give a foretaste and a foreshadowing of things, he actually succeeded in burying that whole nation on his shoulders into the presence of God. And so it is that we are his forever. Now, what do we, how do we apply this priesthood? I say, first of all, be thankful for Christ's perfect priesthood. I mean, we can, we can be like Micah and be, oh, wonderful, we have a Levite as our priest. Now I know the Lord will bless us. And even for him, there was a tiny, tiny element of truth to that because it was God's settled intention that the Levites should be priests. That was far from perfection in every sort of way. And you know what? He could lose that priest. Isn't that a sad thing? One day he, makes a, he, he decides to do what's best for his family by at least having some priest there. The next day he's stolen away by the Danites. Um, we can be a lot more thankful for the perfect priesthood that we have in Christ. You know, I'll just point us again to what we have in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I can do no better than to read in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, and he is speaking, as our brother Peter Naylor points out, he's speaking to Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to the old, tempted to go back to that, Le- that Levitical priesthood, that Aaronic priesthood. He says, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Speaking again of the prior priesthood of Melchizedek. 
Because Aaron came and went. His priesthood came and went. The ceremonial law came and went, but it's not ultimate. It wasn't first. What was first with Abraham? Faith. And what priesthood was first? Not Aaron, but Melchizedek, who was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. And so the template was always there before of the, the eternal and perfect order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Verse 15, far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of weakness, speaking of the ceremonial law and the unprofitableness. That's why we don't have that kind of human priest anymore because the ceremonial law by which they officiated and they worked on our behalf has been annulled. It's done with. It's weakness and unprofitableness for the law being made perfect. Uh, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not a priest made, or he was uh, not made priest without an oath, or they have been priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And listen to this, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. These people in their blindness were looking back to this old priesthood and saying, Oh, don't we wish we had this high priest with his breastplate and with his turban and all the in his shoulder? And he said, No, 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 it's been annulled because it's not good enough for you. And God has given you a better priesthood, a forever priesthood. Nothing like a priest that could be stolen away in the night or who's going to die because of illness. Or is disqualified because of sin? No, we have Jesus Christ who lives forever, whom the Lord himself made. He says, I, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it never comes to an end. His warrant, his commission never expires, and even now he lives to make intercession for us. And that's the second application. I want us to avail ourselves more of Christ's intercession. Right? We, we don't do that enough. We don't think about it enough. And in our lack of mind, mindfulness of, of that particular element, I think we are sometimes tempted to despair. But friends, we have to understand that in every situation, in every trial, no matter how dark, that we have a priesthood who is actively engaged, interceding before. The, the very thing that this mercy seat was pointing to, he's doing it for real. And the very thing that the priest was just some pale shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ is doing it for real. And he has our name there on his breastplate. He is coming before. He is, he's not saying mass for you. He has come in his own blood before the Father who's never yet said no to his intercession on others. We know that there is a time in which the Lord said, if it were possible... For me not to have to do this, but I know it's not possible. But you're, you're not my will, but yours be done. And maybe, in a sense, you could say maybe that wasn't exactly a yes answer. But friends, with regard to all those who we ever interceded for, we know that God has never said no. Because the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, whom he's given all authority in his hand and said, you be the judge. I put the judgment in your hands. I give you all authority. 
He is the one who is also making intercession for us. So Paul says in Romans, we need to avail ourselves of that intercession. Paying a priest to say Mass? No. Christ himself ever lives to intercede. And as we pray to him, sometimes it is precisely as Paul says, we don't even know what to pray. But we're thankful that both the Son and the Spirit make intercession for us when we cannot. So we should avail ourselves even more of that intercession. Not only as we pray, yes, particularly that, but of our ongoing knowledge, moment by moment, Christ is interceding for me. Even in this, Christ is interceding for me. Even when I myself am too tired or too burnt out or whatever to pray properly, Christ intercedes. Thirdly and finally, I think we ought to be set apart from the world. And I just want to say again that there is an element that utterly passed away. Priests that dress up in these particular clothing, that, that doesn't happen anymore. But the idea of being set apart and the idea of being a class of people, being set apart from the world, that is true. And so actually that the, 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 whole, the tribe of Levi becomes a tin plate for God's people in the New Testament. So we have the whole world and God chooses Abraham and says, you're going to be my own special people, my own special treasure. But within the 12 tribes, I'm going to choose one tribe to be really special and set apart, even from the activities and ordinariness of that. Because and what he's doing in that is showing us what he really wants, which is the church. And what he's really after is a people that are set apart to him, that are not given to themselves, the world, the flesh, and the devil, serving the interests of Satan, serving their own selfish desires and all the rest of it, but a people that are continually serving him. People that are not involved in all the filth and wickedness of the world, but people that are set apart from these things in holiness. That's what God wants, and that's what we ought to give to him. So if you think of presents to give to the Lord, maybe we can think indeed of our own holiness as we seek to be set apart from this world and rather to live in, uh, in beautiful, not, not hypocrisy, Not in superficiality, but in deep-seated intentionality and dedication to the Lord. That the Lord would be pleased to receive it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that we only scratch at the edge of these things. And um, Lord, you have written a great and large work that no one has ever yet come to the end of. But we are thankful even for this, these small few elements of the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, pointing us to the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ himself. And Lord, we pray that Christ will have, would have been preached, that Christ would have been received and believed even in these things, and that in particular we would receive his high priesthood and his intercession for us. That he both died for us that we might live, and he lives for us in order that we might be upheld and blessed and sanctified. And we pray indeed that we might be sanctified, made to be a set-apart and holy people, pleasing to the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.